she's pouring from the sky. Stash some chips up. No fear of missing out. I'm about to dip and flip. What? Now pump it up and double up is what we hit. What? 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 This is it. What? Satoshi's pouring from the sky. Stash some chips up. No fear of missing out. I'm about to dip and flip. What? Now pump it up and double up is what we hit. What? 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 Satoshi's pouring from the sky. Welcome to 21ism.com, Sound Culture Renaissance. We curate, craft, and amplify Bitcoin inspired creativity. We do this through art, design, word, code, music, video, and memes. Featuring in the word category, this block, I'm really proud to welcome everyone's favorite, the pleb philosopher king, Robert Breedlove. Robert has written us a fantastic autobiographical piece and uh, it's made me feel that much closer to Rob's work. Um, here he is ripping and going deep with our very good friend John Vallis. I know you guys are going to love this one. Please go show Rob some love afterwards on Twitter and share this around. Enjoy. What's up, man? Hey, buddy. What I'm interested in, in what's happening in this space, you know, as, as a lot of people who know my stuff will know is talking about how Bitcoin changes people. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we were just discussing, like, I think one of the, we're so interested in people's characters because this thing has such a big influence on people. It, it is a, seems to be something that is a profound truth and reveals truth. And I think part of the reason why we're we're so intent on understanding the truth of people's characters in this space, because we realize the gravity of this phenomenon and we want to know who we're mixing it up with. Right. We don't want there to be like a facade, you know, between what people are showing us and what they really are. And I, I think that's one of the amazing things about this space is that people are able to be themselves or at least, you know, that's that's how they're judged. And um and you, you know, you've done so much great work in this space. You know, a lot of people are a fan of your writing and your thoughts, and you've really helped expand everyone's understanding about this phenomenon. And, uh, you know, I like to think I don't, we're both familiar with Jordan Peterson's work and in Maps of Meaning, he references Young a little, young a little bit, and he talks about these people. I think at, in that passage, they were talking about the alchemists, right? Um, but Jung referred to them as the the most refined and differentiated minds of their age mm. and being the first to encounter the emergent anomaly and the first mm. to have their internal structures reoriented to accommodate for this new anomalous mm. phenomenon. And, you know, I, I think that's exactly what's going on with Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. And as a result, I think that just makes us we're, we're witnessing so many changes in ourselves and that makes us especially interested in the changes that are happening in other people and because we're all in a process of becoming right we're all mm. finding that we're refining ourselves and i think many of us are striving to improve ourselves in alignment with this new emergent anomaly or phenomenon and you know you you seem to be someone who has done that very intentionally probably before bitcoin but absolutely you know amplified uh since being involved in bitcoin and uh, i think that's reflected in your writing so um 
this conversation today, I think we're, uh, we're going to dig into a little bit about, you know, you and your journey and your transformation and what you're really about. Yeah, man, I'm, uh, <laughs> excited and nervous to do that. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know where to, to start this, you know, we, we were just talking a couple of different angles we could take, but, um, what is, you know, I guess maybe a first place to start is like what characterized kind of who you were prior to Bitcoin and what, what's, what was the impetus for the change to begin? And, and we can either run it forward or back from there. Yeah. I, um, I guess if I trace it all the way back, it's, um, I largely have my mom to thank actually. And that she, there were situations in my childhood where we were very prosperous. And then there were situations in my childhood where we lived the opposite, you know, very struggled a lot economically and, and whatnot. And, but when we, particularly we were very prosperous when I was young, when my mother and father were still together. So this is before the age of five, she just indoctrinated me almost in the, you know, the importance of education. Like I remember always doing, you know, studying letters. We were doing cursive. Uh, she had a guy teach me like higher level arithmetic. This is all before kindergarten. So I was like doing multiplication. I barely knew, like hardly knew what I was doing but she was like really trying to push this on me. And anytime I recall, anytime there was a problem in life or like we're in a situation I didn't like, she's like, well, just remember that education is the gateway to whatever you want. So if this is not what you want, then you need to pursue education because education can take you anywhere you want. It was just this. It's a killer this, thing to instill in someone. Yeah. It was just, um, I guess she was proposing it as this vehicle is what it felt like to me. It's like, you don't like your situation, then it's like, open a book and figure it out. Um, another one of her sayings was always, it's not what you know, but whether you know how to look it up. So there's this big emphasis on self-reliance and tenacity and um, doggedness in a way, like you just got to get scrappy and figure it out. And then, so there's that, you know, and I, I mean, that just became part of my character. I suppose there's, I I've ever since then was just fiercely curious, always asking why it kind of backfired on her a little bit because so this <laughs> is around that annoying kid. Just be like, why, why? Yeah. <laughs> that, but so like three, four, five, she's doing this by the age of six. I'm like, I hope there's no kids listening to this right now, but I'm like, mom, Santa Claus is bullshit. Like it's not true. <laughs> I'm telling all my cousins, like, there's no way. And she's like, would not admit it. You know, she's like, I can't answer the questions. Like you believe what you want. And I literally wore her down. I think I just asked her for 12 hours straight one day until she finally said, okay, it's bullshit. But if you, if you tell anyone that I'll never admit it. And, um, <laughs> and she took the other thing. She took this policy with me that if I was old enough to ask the question, then I was old enough to know the answer. So I started asking really, you know, I'm reading all this stuff. Like I'd get into the encyclopedias and look weird stuff up. I was asking her about sex and, and she would give me like a long thought out scientific response to any of my questions. So it was, man, that's awesome. It was just funny, I guess, kind of how it worked out. 
Um, and so that was the foundation. And then it wasn't really until probably the age of 10 or 11 that I started to read like on my own seriously, like really started to just go in a room alone and read for hours. Um, and I don't know, that's when I learned how to operate that vehicle. Like I started to actually figure out, okay, this is, I knew about this tool before I knew how to read and do things, but it was something I really took into my own possession. I was like, this is, this is something that I can really do whatever I want through or become whatever I want. And so I established this, this relationship with reading that was like self-programming in a way. So if I had questions, I would go and figure it out, you know, like I, as I was instructed. Um, so I get, maybe I drifted from the original question, but I guess that's where I, what I have to think for giving me this general pattern of behavior where I constantly sought to transform myself. Um, and then I started getting into athletics as well around the age of 11 or 12, started to play football, wrestling. And that gave me this whole other domain. I was like, okay, you can, not only can you program your mind, but you can also take that knowledge that you can learn to do things with, but you can actually do things with your body too and develop it. And I was, I, I talked about some of this and the piece that I wrote, but like I was a chubby kid for a while. One thing, one place my mom really erred on the educational front was nutrition. She, I was always like, I was a skinny kid for a while, but then I started just eating a lot of junk food as I got into that age range of 10, 11, 12. Yeah. Um, and I started to get very chubby and I was like, mom, what's going on? Like, is this food, is this pizza good for me? Like what's going on? And she, her answer was always, Oh, you're a grown boy. You can eat whatever you want. So like, she just didn't, I don't know what it was about nutrition, but it just wasn't her, her jam. So I discovered athletics and I started applying and I had, I had a good push actually for my stepfather, Frank, he was pushing me on football and wrestling. And then I just figured that out that I could actually train my body just like I did my mind to transform myself. And that was really empowering. I think from that point on, after, after getting into football and wrestling, and really when I got into Olympic weightlifting, which was my main sport from the age of 12 to 17, I did competitive Olympic lifting. Um, I felt very empowered and free by that point that I knew how to create myself. Um, still going through all the weirdness of being a young teenager and all that, but I always hold on to these things. Um, it's kind of a way to steer myself and, and my own development. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, well, there's two things. One, have you ever seen the movie, um, into the wild? I think it was, or maybe the wild it was with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. So Anthony um, Hopkins is a rich old man. They're on a hunting trip. They plane crashes. They need to survive in the woods. And I think I saw it when I was maybe around 10 or 11 or 12. Hmm. And I, and Anthony Hopkins, the whole, the way they characterized him in the movie was that he was like a very learned man, right? He was hmm. successful in business and he was very worldly and learned and all that kind of stuff. And because of that, even though he was old, 
he was able to survive out in the wild. He knew how to make a compass and a structure mm -hmm. and hunt, hunt and all that kind of stuff, just by virtue of having read, never having done any of these things. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the thing that clicked. I was like, you know, that guy is weak ostensibly, right? He's an old frail man, but mm -hmm. knowledge empowered him. And that mm -hmm. was part of the thing that, that inspired me to actively read, like you were just describing. Mm -hmm. But when you were saying all that, what, and you mentioned that once you got into the physical side of things and you realized that like you could kind of control your destiny or you could, you know, you, a consciousness of this was just a game of encountering maybe your deficiencies and shoring them up so that you could move to the next level and the next level mm -hmm. and the next level. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's, and I don't like a lot of people think that way, but when I, when I was growing up and I'm getting the sense from how you're characterizing it, did you feel that you approached things somewhat differently than your peers? Like, did you think that you were more actively or maybe being more intentional with how you approached your life than some of the other people that you might've, you know, hung around with? Yeah. It's funny. You frame the question that way because it also calls to mind another layer to this that I failed to mention earlier is that it was around the age of seven or eight that I started, I'd, I'd been into video games before, you know, like played Mario and whatever, but around the age, I think seven, I got this game called final fantasy seven. I don't know if you ever heard of this game. It was on PlayStation. It's a role-playing game. So like you're a character, tiny character in this massive world, you're talking, you like control the character. So it's like, um, you're, who you're going to talk to, what items you're going to buy, what equipment you're going to wear. You're customizing your character and your party. You know, you have all these other characters with you. And so it's a very wide open game, but it's kind of like playing a novel in a way. Like you're even in the battles with monsters, you're reading, right? You know, you're on a menu, you're choosing cast this spell, you know, do this retreat attack, whatever. The whole thing is a book. Basically it's, a, it's an interactive book. And so that was, probably contributing to my wanting to read even before that, but also adding to this notion of advancing levels. Like the only way to get good in the game is you had to train, you had to go. And it's not like there was no, there's a storyline to follow, but there's no, it's not like a typical game where you just go level one, level two, level three, level four. You're it's, it's open. It's free. Like you have to kind of choose your own adventure. And, um, I think maybe that combination was, was some template I took into my own life as well. It's like, you can, okay, this is how you play that game. That's much more, much more of a simulacrum to real life than most other video games you've played, which are like fucking Mario, you know, linear, this was non-linear, this is open. And so I think I applied that to my life a bit. Um, and the way you describe that advancing levels, that's how I started to think about it. And as a result of that combination, I guess, is this fierce curiosity, this reading and this, this determination to just always want to be getting better. Um, yeah, I guess I was different than most kids. I was, uh, I was voted best all around, but that was my, <laughs> my middle school superlative. I won, I think I won it a number of years. Um, 
until finally senior year of high school, I was voted most popular, which was really cool. Oh, but don't, don't let this, <laughs> don't let this be sound that cool because my graduating class was only 33 kids. So wasn't that you're, popular. Yes. You're, you're so humble. You're so humble. Um, <laughs> well, look, man, I, you know, this, I, I'm fascinated. I mean, I think we're all fascinated how people come to be who they are. And I think generally it wouldn't surprise me if Bitcoiners were those people that were a little more or dramatically more curious than their peers growing up, you know, for whatever reason, Mm. you know, the aperture stayed a little bit more wide open. They didn't Mm -hmm. focus down on a particular path or a particular ideology or perception. And as a result, there was more space for novel information to come in. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's what started the cascade of leading toward the interest that ultimately led to learning about or confronting Bitcoin. Of course, there's many different Mm -hmm. ways people get their exposure to it, but my sense has been that, you know, it's been people that lean towards being more curious. Um, And obviously, you know, you, you sent through um, a written piece prior to this discussion and obviously you can leave out or or discuss whatever you want, but I mean, I, you like, what was the influence of the sort of tribulations of your younger years if, if any, informing your perspective as you like emerged into like adolescence, teenage years and having the mentality that we just described. Right. Because, and I can only compare it to my own, but like if you had to deal with more adversity from a family perspective than myself and and perhaps most other people. So like, did that consciously influence how you thought about learning or life or development or you know, intellectual or other, other pursuits, like did that play in at all? Or was that just something you had to accommodate for and deal with to move forward? Um, yeah. So I guess the first aspect of adversity in childhood, was just my mother and father separated when I was five. So up until that point, like zero to five, the few memories that I have were pretty damn good. My, my father was very successful, very financially successful. We had a nice condo on the beach. I remember being on the beach like almost every single day. My mom, you know, she just raised us pretty much on the beach and, you know, catching hermit crabs and playing in the water and whatever, and just being a kid. Um, but then when they separated, we were living in Florida at the time. They separated. That was uh, turbulent. You know, there was kind of like a lot of arguing and fighting and all of that. And, and then we moved, um, moved to Atlanta initially, but then a lot of my family's in Chattanooga. So we're kind of moved to Atlanta, but then we'd also spend time in Chattanooga. They're about two hours apart. And, um, that was just an interesting transition because we went from this very prosperous existence, very, you know, as well off as you could want to be to just with a single mom, you know, and she's struggling. She's, she's hustling. She, um, she was a bartender. And then she's also like operating, owning and operating bars. Sorry. I got to pause for a minute. Can you hear my daughter crying? (laughs) No. Okay. She's downstairs screaming. I didn't know it was coming through. (laughs) Good timing. Um, yeah, really. So 
things just got a lot more uncertain and we were moving around a lot. That was the, that was the other, this is something that probably contributed to my development unconsciously that I just, I think between the ages of five and eight, I was enrolled in probably a dozen different schools over that time period. Cause my mom was moving around opening different bars and all this, you know, doing that whole thing. So I just got really used to reintroducing myself and like seeing the whole little game and, you know, you just, I don't know, maybe as a kid sitting inside of one school, you get really comfortable. I would imagine with your friends and you know, your routine and patterns. And this just like started to create a lot of space between me and that where it's like, how would you describe it? I don't know. You just, learn to be adaptive, I suppose, almost unconsciously. Um, and then, you know, but things were still good overall. Like I think I sort of, despite all of that, my childhood self felt good. Like I was well provided for, and you know, we had Christmas and birthdays, all the normal kid things, um, just moving around a lot. So not had no stability and in the social domain, I guess. Um, but, but mom was great. You know, she was taking care of us and doing the whole thing, but it was around the age of eight where she, I think her struggles started to break her a little bit. Um, she'd always drank, but it started to get worse. Like she started sort of drinking more heavily and just, um, she became less reliable as a, as a mother. And, uh, did you know like what was going on? Could you tell what was going on or did you just think mom's being weird? Like at that age, can, can you put two and two, can you put those things together? You know, it was pretty sudden actually. It was like, there was one night where she just got really drunk and she was, um, she was verbally, you know, abusive and, um, just, you couldn't, you, it was hard to interact with her if she wasn't yeah. there. You know, if you've ever dealt with a drunk person, it's like, yeah. But did you know it was alcohol that was causing? I did. It? I did, but I'd never seen this side of her, you know, right, I'd seen right. her drink and I'd seen her do whatever, but, um, I was, it was still mom always. I could always, you know, but at this point she was like, actually not there. Like I couldn't get through to her. Um, so that was, that's a pretty stark memory for me. I was like, okay this person that you depend on for everything, all of a sudden in this moment, you can't reach that person at all. Yeah. Like she's just, well, you know, it's like, I'm sure we've both listened to again, tons of Peterson. And it's when he talks about, you know, when chaos enters, right. When you have, you know, your standard territory to which you're adapted and then boom, something dramatically different enters and you have to completely it's completely foreign and you have to completely reorient to accommodate for that unexpected kind of change to the territory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And I, um, as a kid, you're just like, you feel scared and distraught. Yeah. It feels like chaos. You're like all of a sudden this, this foundation or the substrate you depended upon, right. You could always kind of put your back up against that wall that was, safe and sound all of a sudden it like fell out from behind you and you're like, yeah. Whoa, where am I at now? And you're trying to reorient yourself, I guess. 
And um, that, so that was a wake up call. And it's not like she was consistently bad. She's still a great mom, like almost like 80% of the time, like she was there, you know, doing the thing, but she went, started going through these cycles where she would, you know, be good and be consistent. And then she'd be drinking and unpredictable and, or absent or, so it started, this whole cycle started to play out and it would accelerate over time, you know, from the age of eight to maybe 14, 15, she would just become less reliable over time. And so I, at the time of my younger brother's two and a half years, my junior, it just kind of put me in this situation where I'm like, okay, I have to figure it again. I have to like rely on myself now to figure this out. And I'm not completely alone. Like I have, I have help. I have other adults in my life, but to make sure things get done, to make sure we eat, to make sure we get to school, to make sure we have clean clothes, to make sure whatever <laughs> needed to be done. It was like, I had to check on it. I had to make sure it was getting done. You know, right. I couldn't just throw it over the fence to, to an adult. Um, so you probably so grow up a bit faster than most. Yeah. And I, I didn't know at the time, I had no idea at the time. Um, had some hints from like my friend's parents. They're like, you've been at our, you know, like, we're like, I'd go hang out with my friend, Jamie and, you know, hang out at his house for four or five hours. And they're like, you know, don't your, doesn't your mom wonder where you're at right now? Like what's going on with that? And I'm like, Oh no, I gotta, you know, this, I gotta ride home. Don't worry about it. So it was just, there were these hints that like, I didn't have this normal childhood, but at the time you're just kind of like, it's all, you know, you're just, you're just rolling with it. Did you know at the time? And the reason why I'm asking this is because, you know, when we're talking about why we develop in the way we do and why perhaps we're more, conscientious or self-conscious and maybe some of our peers, like, did you know that you had to, uh, like a comp, you, like that example you just gave where your mom's friend was like, you know, what's going on? Don't you need to be home? Or isn't your mom mm -hmm. worried about you? Did you know that you had to kind of put up, like accommodate for those questions? You know, did you know that you had to kind of, um, have excuses though. That's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying? Like well, you had to I, I, be aware I, of those things. Yeah. 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 I, I learned, you know, but I also just kind of told it like it was, you know, I'm like, right. you know, here's where I'm at. And I just, here's how I get home. Um, you know, I had just different arrangements with like my stepdad or, um, you know, I had, a, I had a cousin and an aunt, you know, just different people that would drive me. I just had to make arrangements, but I had to sort it out, frankly. Hmm. And, um, I was just straight up with other adults about that. So they caught on pretty quickly too. They're like, okay, this is not, you know, the situation for this kid at home is not exactly normal, right, but, right. but, um, but they were great. You know, they became other people, other support systems in my life. They were, they were good to me. You know, they treated me like, I don't know, like, I guess you would treat a kid in that situation. So they were, um, it was really, really helpful. Um, and was an es escape for me in a way. Like I loved being at my friend, my friend, Jamie in particular, I was spent a lot of time at his house. He had these nice computers, you know, we could play video games on he had a huge, nice yard. 
always had tons of food. I was like, you know, it was a great place to hang out. <laughs> I saw um, your piece talking yeah. about Nerf, Nerf Wars and WWF. It seemed yeah. I mean, exactly the same as, as my childhood. Yeah. Um, I'm sure many others. So, and I didn't actually just learned this recently, but um, kids that are in uncertain boys that are in uncertain situations, um, they can actually start puberty earlier than other kids, which makes sense because like mother nature is like, okay, you're a kid without protection (laughs) in the jungle. Like you need to activate these hormones to survive or whatever. And I never, I literally just learned this maybe a few weeks or a month ago. And it's funny because when I was in fourth grade, so I'm probably nine years old. This is like a year after things started to get more uncertain for me. My voice started to change. Like I was already a tall kid. I was already a big kid, but I went and I started puberty. I don't know if you start puberty when your voice changes, but it's an indication that you're, you know, starting down the path kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most kids voices weren't, didn't change until sixth, seventh grade. So this is like, I don't know, two, three years early. And, um, so I don't know. I thought that was just interesting. It's like, okay, so there's this unconscious piece to the development where like, it's just by virtue of where I'm at, the situation I'm in, it's actually changing the way I'm developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, the, the longer term influence that's had on my life is um, people that are close to me and know me, like their, their most common complaint about me would be that I can be very hard, like very cold or callous or, uh, unemotional, you know, like, and so it took me and it's still, I'm still working on it, still working through all of that. But like, it just, I developed a shell around me, I guess, at a young age that I didn't know. I wasn't like, Oh, better put on the armor. Cause it just happens. You have this Darwinian response, I guess, to your environment. Well, do you think it's a bad thing? And the reason why I ask is because, you know, again, um, that's something, a criticism that, you know, that I've received, uh, throughout my life, usually in reference to dating in, in high school and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know, breakups and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it a coldness or is it a matter of factness about, you know, what is, you know, cause you strike me as someone who contends with the truest form of reality that you can and not dwelling on things that are done and not dwelling on things that you wish could be and that kind of stuff. So, you know, do you think you're cold or are you just matter of fact about what is? Um, I think one of the most difficult things about maturity and maybe one of the defining features of maturity is learning to see yourself through the eyes of others. Right. Where, for the longest, no, I didn't think anything was wrong with me at all. I was like, oh, I'm great. What do you mean? I'm nice. Like, I'm cool. You know. But when you've had enough interactions where people have reported something similar, you know, the, the evidence starts to kind of shift one, right. one direction or the other. But I also, there, it's so nuanced because... The other way I think about this is not to say like, it's a bad thing. You can't judge that. and be like, that's always bad. Mm. It's contextual, right? Like your greatest strength as a human, whatever you can identify 
used in the wrong circumstances or at the wrong time is just as easily your greatest weakness, right? Mm. So we're all very imperfect. We all have these deficiencies or blind spots, whatever you want to call it, that in the wrong setting can hurt us or hurt others. Like it can be, can create a bad outcome. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't think it's bad that I have this hardness or this, um, which I guess I sort of reinforced it because I started getting into Eastern philosophy and stoicism and all of these things in kind of my late teenage years. And that's, you know, contributing to this notion of detachment and right. um, indifference, you know, almost advocating for it in a, in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think it's bad per se, but it is something you have to know about yourself as you relate to the world and people around you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that self-awareness, that's, I think when you can create the bad outcome or you're more likely to create the bad outcome, I guess you could say. But for me, the, where I'm at now is just like trying to integrate all of that. You know, I'm not, this might get a bit spiritual, but it's like, there's this, the way I, was put to me that I really like to think about it is there's an angel and animal within all of us, you know, that we are the, the mediator between what we could call heaven, which is like the epistemic principle, this domain of information and, you know, higher awareness. And then we're also the animal, which is from the earth. Like we are the dirt, we are stardust. We are this raw material this ancient, violent, ruthless, nasty biological force. And as human beings, we're like this, you know, the spiral in between. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just ignore one or the other. You can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to be a wild animal and, you know, hump everything I see and <laughs> beat people up. Like you'll be thrown in a cage and you're useless and your life will be miserable. But you also can't just be, an absolute monk. I mean, I guess you can, but it's for most of us, it's not really a viable option. So you have to find this kind of middle ground of integration mm -hmm. and that's where I'm at now. So it's like, it's not, I'm not trying to say that the, the, the shell or the, the armor that I put on as a kid is bad. It's more like trying to figure out how to wear it properly in the world and channel that, that, that animal violent energy towards something good. Like you can actually have the angel, guide where you direct those animalistic energies, but those animalistic energies, um, they're very powerful. And a lot of this, you know, our mutual friend, Josh, like he's helped me sort through a lot of this. Yeah. Um, cause I've had this tendency to swing kind of back and forth. Like I'm either trying to be a monk or a rock star and now it's like, I'm trying to find, okay, I can, <laughs> I can be, I can be both. I think just this walk well, this middle path. You know, I, th these are things that I've wrestled with for a long time as well. And uh, through various pursuits, be they, you know, consulting the Eastern philosophies and stuff like that at a, at a young age or the psychedelic pursuits and stuff like that. I mean, it, it, you confront the ego, right. In those pursuits oftentimes. And mm -hmm. what I've come to appreciate is that, as you said, I mean, like one behavior can be, you know, the absolute best, most optimal a way to interact with a given moment and the worst way to interact with a given moment, depending on the circumstances and the, in the environment and anyone who adheres rigidly to a 
particular identity, which basically is, um, you know, adhering to the ego, whether mm. you're a monk or whether you're mm. uh, like a bad person, uh, both, I think, are the same process playing out in a different way. And as a result, mm. I think both are less than optimal. You know, I tend to think of the quote unquote spiritual masters as the ones who can move into uh, the best expression of the most genuine aspect of themselves that is optimized for the moment they're in as the moment in each moment, let's say, mm -hmm. right? So you, 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 you're, you have a good enough relationship, I guess, to use your terms with the animal part of yourself that you can completely kind of unify with that when necessary, mm -hmm. but you can, detract, you can detach from it when necessary too, when you need different aspects of yourself. And like, you know, I think sometimes people might characterize as that being like two-faced or not yourself, but I, I don't think that's the proper characterization because as you said, mm -hmm. like there's an element of us that's like a ferocious ape, right? We just want to tear each other limb from limb, yeah. right? And if you're protecting your daughter, that's what you want to engage. Right. But if, if someone's insulting you on a stage at a Bitcoin debate, you don't want to engage yep. that one. You want yep. to engage, right, right, you know, right. some other aspect of yourself. So I think the master is the one who knows how to move between all the, mm -hmm. the different aspects of themselves with perfect fluidity yes. as the moment requires, you know? Yes. Yeah. The, the, it's like this floating point awareness, I yeah. guess, to use a, a computer term. And the visual I have is you're the angel. It's like trying to break a wild Bronco or something, right? Like the angel has to be the master over the animal in a way. Like the animal gives the angel incredible power, right? If you're riding this animal, you can move a lot faster. You can go a lot longer. You can, you know, you can do all sorts of things physically that you could not otherwise do, let's say, um, or even, even your determination maybe in some respects comes from that animal too, that raw power, but the guidance and purpose and wisdom and direction in which you channel that raw power has to be guided by the higher principles. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a fucking balancing act, man. It's an art. Like I, and I've, for years and then still in, a, in adulthood here. And even in my teenage years, like my big problem was anger problems. Like I, that's what got me into the Eastern stuff and the stoicism was like, I'm like just fuming all the time about little things. Like who put the spoon in the, like even in my mind, like who put the spoon on the fucking counter? It's like, but I didn't know at the time I, I thought that was me. I thought that was who that was me right. Talking, but as you, as you mature and you develop and you, you engage with some of these practices, you can create some space between yourself and that component of your personality. And, um, that, you know, that, that caused me a lot of suffering in my life, my anger problems and, and those around me at times. And it's some, it's it, to your point earlier, it's like, if you get too for me, it was getting so close to that animal that the animal became the master temporarily, right? Like he just took me over and did whatever. But in reality, like it's, again, as you start to zoom out on this, it's like, you're really just running a program. I think like I'm running a program that I probably inherited from my mother or, you know, 
she dated a number of men as I was growing up. So I had uh, exposure to other people's programs as well. And then, so she's ultimately running some program that she got from her childhood. And it's like, where, you know, where does it stop? Where? And the real, the, the power and the freedom that I'm focused on now is that ability that, that, that harness of awareness, I guess, by which the angel controls the animal. It is awareness, frankly, it's that floating point awareness where you can choose to, it's the, the Victor Frankl final human freedom, right? The ability to selectively respond to your exterior circumstances at all times, like right where the logos lives, the principle of reason to filter it through and channel it accordingly, right? To choose what you need to be in any moment. Mm. Um, that's a, you know, that's something that I considered a lot when I was younger too, is it was the, how do I, and maybe this is impossible, but how do you get to the deconditioned neutral state? Cause as you were saying, mm-hmm. like you, you, of course you pick up all these different cues for behavior, these different programs. And as you say, it's wild to think like, well, your mom got it from her dad who got it from his dad, who got it from a, an uncle. Like mm-hmm. we're dealing with approaches to behavior that are both ancient and mm. new and some, mm. some like who knows why we pick up certain elements of those and why they ultimately get in- integrated into our, you know, into who we are or, and, yeah. and into our meat suit, you know? And I always, when I was younger, I recognized the danger of being at the whim of my conditioning, right? Because, yeah. you know, it was evident to me from an early age that if, if that was the case, then, I wouldn't be making decisions so much as the aggregate programming that I've been exposed to yes. is making the, the decisions. And so for me, it was all about deconditioning, like trying to get, and of course, you know, this ultimately ultimately leads to um, pursuits like meditation or breathing or psychedelics, mm-hmm. where you try to get to the point where you let go of everything, mm-hmm. right? What are, what are you without association with any of the things that the meat suit has associated with. Right. Right. And, and I don't know how you describe what that is. You know, people try to put labels on it, pure awareness, pure consciousness, pure logos, whatever you want to say, but like, and you can never, it's it, like, it's a forever striving, right? Cause you're always bound by this meat vehicle. So there's mm-hmm. always an association to something, but I think, you know, maybe that's as far as you can go. And then you come back from those experiences. And I think that helps you create that space that we were talking about before that you realize like, Oh, there, there are two entities at play here. Sometimes mm. they're competing, but what if I got them to cooperate? Like yeah. then I'd really have some power going on. Yes. And you know, that's, I don't think you ever get to the point where you figure that out and it's on autopilot. I think it requires your, your constant intention and awareness maybe forever but yeah. that's good. Right. Because you always want to be in the driver's seat, right. You yes. always want to be doing things intentionally. So, um, no, it's the path to freedom, you know, like, right. cause what you're, you're describing is your own choices. Yeah. If you're just unconsciously running these programs, that is the opposite of freedom. That means you are being governed by some exogenous force you picked up along the way. And that, that floating point awareness of what you can control, you are now relinquishing control, mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and that, 
and that, that's the old saying, like your, your thoughts become your words, words become your habits, habits become your character, whatever that flow is. Like you have to be, it starts in that source. Like, or what are you yeah. choosing to be in any moment? Um, and if you, if you forfeit that, then you're forfeiting your own self-development in the world. And I think it's the right way to think about it too, that we are, as Peterson describes, a collection of sub personalities. Mm-hmm. It's not like John, your personality. It's like you are a composite of personality elements. You've developed yourself probably reading and studying and, you know, experiencing the world. But even when you're reading, you're kind of picking it up from someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone else's experience everyone you've ever interacted with, right? They are each a composite of their own subpersonalities. You're picking up little shards of that along the way. So we're all this amalgamation of everyone else, you know, through our own experiential aperture. And this, so then the question is like, okay, to realize that, that, that I think is freeing in itself to not be like, Oh, it's just my personality. I just do this because then you're just like, you're again, you're forfeiting, right? You're justifying whatever behavior it is. You're in an argument with someone. If you're in an argument with someone and they're like, I don't like this particular thing you did or said, and you're like, Oh, that's just the way I am. You're discounting your own sovereignty to zero. Right? It's like to yeah. just say, that's just the way I am. You're putting your dynamic, the dynamic process that you are, you're putting yourself in this static bucket and preventing any opportunity for growth. And it, this, and then we're like, we're trying to trace it back. Right. So it's like, okay, so my mom had this thing and then her dad and it's like, where the fuck, like, does it just go all the way back? Cain and Abel, like it just rolled all the way forward <laughs> here. And we're just, this is the deal. Probably, you know, probably a little bit, something. There's gotta be some moral to that story. But then one of the lessons I've learned in getting into Bitcoin is just that there's also we are, our sub personalities or personalities or patterns of action are sculpted largely by our incentives, right? By the incentive structures we inhabit. Mm -hmm. So you can change someone very quickly by changing the carrot and stick under which they operate, even in one lifetime, even in a few years, a few months, right? You can change someone's behaviors and these behaviors, right? Once they've, they're repeated over you know, if you're doing the same thing every day, you start to change. It changes you. And so I'm kind of out on a limit, but it's like the, for me, this, as a young kid, kind of being forced into the real world early gave me this incentive to become self-sufficient to a greater extent than most eight-year-olds simultaneously gave me this incentive to question authority all the time because I never could depend on authority necessarily. And maybe this is part nature, part nurture. I'm not sure, but I've always been pretty Mm anti-authoritarian. And so then it's like looking at, if I just look at that little sequence from my grandfather to my mother, to me, I know my grandfather was, in war. He was in the Korean war. He was in, uh, U S special forces deployed into Cuba, by the way, to destroy banking infrastructure. He was blowing up (laughs) fucking banks in Cuba for the U S government because of the cold war taking place. 
between Soviet Union and the U.S., right? The, mm. the Cuba was one of the, the pivotal points for the Cold War. And then I'm like rolling the sovereign individual education on top of that. So you have these two resource strategies, communism and we'll call it capitalism, even though we both know it's not actually that mm-hmm. competing against one another in the broader geopolitical stage, reaching a flashpoint in Cuba that my grandfather just happened to be involved with, you know, he's down there destroying, but that the, the trauma that these competing the frictions that these competing resource strategies created, he was embroiled in that. And that caused him psychological harm that he then came back into his normal life using alcohol and other things to really just alcohol for him, mostly just alcohol and tobacco to, to anesthetize his pain, which contributes to my mom's like now she has these incentives, or I guess as a result of alcohol, I don't know if you'd call this an incentive necessarily, but he's just not being as good of a parent as he otherwise would, right? He's not giving my mom the love she needs or whatever. Um, my understanding is that generally she was just able to run wild. Like she had no supervision. So she, if you just imagine a kid with zero supervision, it's like, you're going to mm-hmm. get into all kinds of shit, you know, good, bad, and otherwise. So then she develops her own trauma. It's like an echo of that pain. And then that somehow gets passed into, into me. And, and now <laughs> It's like almost overwhelming to think about it that way, but I'm just, I feel like my deeper purpose with the Bitcoin movement is so entangled with this path. It's like to, to eliminate the notion of force and coercion, not eliminate, to reduce force and coercion in the world that created these giant you know, competing resource strategies that created so much. I'm just experiencing one pathway of friction they've created. Like how many millions of lives have they impacted on Mm -hmm. so many different ways? Like mine, mine is nothing, frankly, right? Like imagine someone that has ancestors that that were involved in the Holocaust. Like it gets way worse. I just have this one little tiny snippet of it. Mm -hmm. And it's been so, there's been so much to deal with just in my own little scope that it's, it, um, I don't know when I try, when I take that view on it, it's like, this movement is so fucking important, man. It's like, we need to get rich and prosperous and free from the shackles of coercion just so we can heal. Like, I think we need generations of healing. Like mm-hmm. people need to go through, like, I'm, in, I'm seeing a healer here. I'm doing all these things. It's a whole, it's probably going to take my whole life just to try and deal with this um, intergenerational trauma such that I don't pass it to my daughter, you know, like that's my focus now as a, as a parent, it's like, what can I do to maximize that floating point awareness to really look at this thing for what it is and heal and grow myself as much as possible. So I can be a good loving parent to my daughter, not just some, just another medium through which this echo passes, you know, I want to be something that diffuses it. So it's hard to like get it all into words, but that's kind of that. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, even though it's under less than ideal circumstances, the, the, the poetry, you know, it's certainly not lost. I mean, how poetic it is that your grandfather, great grandfather was 
destroying financial infrastructure, um, even if it, you know, like I said, maybe wasn't under the best of circumstances, but, and then his grandson or great grandson is um, doing so in a, in a, in a different kind of a way, but, you know, you're, I, it's, um, I don't know what to say to that. Right. Because can, can, will we ever, there's two things the one thing that came to my mind is when that, what you were describing, when that idea was first impressed upon me was a good friend of mine, her grandmother <clears throat> was like the sweetest woman ever. Right. And I know like lots of grandmas are that way. And that's some beautiful thing about grandmothers. And she mm -hmm. was, she was this lady, she painted uh, mushrooms. That's all she ever did was painted mm -hmm. mushrooms. And she tended to her garden, always smiling, always like, you know, the kind of old lady that would needle you a bit, make fun of you a bit and laugh and joke around. It's just mm -hmm. absolute gorgeous, beautiful soul. And, uh, and she, she passed away and we went to her funeral and we were speaking with everyone afterwards. And like, I noticed that in her daughter and in her granddaughter, who was my friend, that beauty, like that magic that's, that was in her pushed through them, right? It, it lived on, right? So this, mm -hmm. what you're talking about works in both ways, right? Like, you know, if you express, you know, love and honesty and truth, like those things can reverberate for the rest of time too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how important they are. Yeah. you like, you know, now I, I know it sounds super corny, but like I'll be out for a run and I'll see a kid on the sidewalk, like, you know, walking with their parents and I'll give them the, the biggest, fattest smile I can. Right. Because mm -hmm. I want them to have that like data point where like <laughs> I, I encountered another human today and they gave yeah. me a big fat smile. And like, yeah. cause like we were saying before, you never know, what it is that's going to tilt someone in one direction or another direction. I mean, yeah. life is all about just like zig versus zag and you wind yes. up in a totally different place. And, uh, you know, and that's why when, when we in, in this space, or at least for me, you know, why the idea of truth and freedom and honesty is so important is because like the world is super fucked up and how long will it take for us to restructure it so that it's, more aligned with some, albeit ill-defined ideal that we may have, maybe it'll take a long time, right? But your, our actions today that express those timeless qualities, and I think mm. qualities that we would determine are good, they can change things right now, you know, for us and for the people that we interact with. And really it's like that that cosmic battle between good and evil, right? It's like yeah. you pushing through those things, pushing those things out into the world and having them reverberate and, and in other people, or being a representation that pushes through the anger and the resentment and the frustration or whatever else it is. And, and having that affect people and yeah. go out into the world. And as you say, I think the structure of money and, and society that we have today tilts toward generating the latter in terms mm -hmm. of instilling in people the propensity to have those reactions, which then go out into the world and just perpetuate themselves. And I think yes. what we're trying to cultivate in Bitcoin or, or what Bitcoin represents and what we're part of the reason why we're trying to amplify it or contribute to it <clears throat> is because I think we agree that that will create a system that minimizes the degree to which those behaviors are, you'll never get rid of them, but the, the degree to which they're, they're amplified and, and they yes. perpetuate. Right. 
And if, if we can do that, I mean, like you, you were just saying, like your grandfather was shaped by his time, right? He, when he had that traumatic experience, then it shaped the rest of his life with alcohol and smoking mm-hmm. and um, neglect to his children that affect his mom, his mom affect your experience. Like mm-hmm. what, what does a human being look like in a system that is, uh, that is structured around immutable truth? <sighs> You know, like how, how, how do kids that grow up in, in that future world that we hope exists, how do they develop, you know? Yeah, I, that quote came to mind where, um, I don't even know who said it and I'll paraphrase it, like uh, a lie can run around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. It's a, lie lying and deception like it's a shortcut right in a lot of ways yeah Yeah, it's very it's an an expedient but it dissolves in time right like truth always emerges which is Mm -hmm. you can't the three things you can't hide belong the sun the moon and the truth so the truth the lie moves across space very quickly but it dissipates just as quickly whereas the truth is timeless like by definition, right? If it's an, it's an accurate portrayal of reality, one definition of truth, reality is what persists over time by definition. So, Mm -hmm. um, I would surmise that I can't answer the question. First of all, like who can answer that question? How do we, what do we know? But directionally, I would say that we have a money which again, if we consider that incentives are the primary force shaping our behaviors, money is the most powerful material incentive in the world. I don't think that's arguable at all. When it is premised on lies and deception, which it's or it originates as a lie, right? It's paper redeemable for gold, no longer redeemable for gold. And now we don't know. It's just opaque to try and look behind the dollar and see how many dollars are they? Where are they? Who's making them? Who's profiting from them? How are they flowing? Like we, none of those questions can be answered. Mm-hmm. It's just this, it's just it's clear as mud and twice as dirty as I like to say. <laughs> so the incentives we have are deceptive, right? They're, it's another way to think about this is, we could say that there's a direct correlation between direct inverse correlation between scarcity and civilization, right? In a pure state of nature where we're all just naked running around on the earth, scarcity is very high because we have no division of labor. We've created no wealth. So we're much more likely to be violent and go bash someone over the head and take their berries and eat for the night. Right? Like we're very, the time, Preference is maximized in that situation. Like you're just trying to eat and survive and maybe hump somebody and make some more people, right? There's no civilization at all. When we manipulate the money supply, we're magnifying scarcity. Like some are decreasing scarcity for themselves. We'd say like the shareholders of central banks or or the beneficiaries of the fiat currency spigot, but they're externalizing all that scarcity onto the rest of the world because they're robbing them through inflation. And then further they're, they're, they're funding it through 
they're using inflation to fund warfare, which is also you're going and trying, trying to forcibly acquire more resources from others. Like it's the same, it's almost the same as inflation in a way it's politics, inflation, war. They all just kind of go hand in hand when, when the money is politicized. So what I'm trying to get at here is that, that just like the lie that fizzles out quickly, you know, like it runs really fast, but it fizzles out quickly. I think the civilizations built on lies can run really fast, but also fizzle out quickly. And so what is something antithetical, like a civilization's antithetical look like would be more timeless, right? I mean, I, I think the only historical, we have these little pockets of historical allegories, perhaps, right? Where a, a society or group of societies were on a gold standard for some amount of time, or it didn't even have to be a gold standard. It could just be a hard money standard, right? Before that hard money was compromised, that they tended to flourish. They, they goes hand in hand with, with social cohesion and civilization. So my expectation and my hope, I guess, because it's all it really can be, so we ultimately don't know is that we could just build a civilization that is so wealthy, right? So much prosperity is being created that there's, and, and that there's already almost nothing to fight over. It's like your economic, because we're always, there's always these arguments that we're fighting over ideological reasons, but I really don't, I think it all percolates up from the economic domain. Like if we're all, all of our needs are met and there's plenty of energy and plenty of food and there's no work or little work, like, no, who's going to fight? There's nothing to fight about. I mean, maybe they'll fight, but then you couple that with the money that can't be stolen. So now you've removed the incentive to go to war at all. So you can go and conquer these people, but you're going to spend a ton of money doing it and you're not going to get anything at the end of it. How many people are going to engage in that enterprise? Like it just, it diminishes the value proposition of armed combat, frankly. So you roll all these things together and I'm calling it sovereignism based on that book right there over your shoulder. And it's like, how could that not be the most timeless sustainable civilization we've ever created. Mm-hmm. We've just, we've, we've, and that is the breakthrough of Bitcoin, right? It's just, it's something converting energy into, I mean, so many things, trust, <laughs> pro, the possibility of prosperity, peace, perfect information, by the way, because the whole thing here is we're, we're dealing with uncertainty. We need one mm. fucking thing. Like, can we just get some rules that are certain, please? So we can all build a sound strategy. And it would be great if those rules induced us, right? Channeled our animal energies towards something productive rather than towards something violent. Yeah. And it just so happens that's what Bitcoin does by, by reducing the incentives to violence. So I have very high hopes for civilization <laughs> on Bitcoin, but it's just an experiment. You know, we don't know. I think, you know, we, as we said already, there's no separating the individual from the social dynamic or structure that they're in. Right. So like, even as deconditioned as we want to make ourselves, I always think about um, like, let's say you're our counterparts in the time of the pyramids in Egypt. Right. Who the fuck are these pharaohs building these these pyramids or whatever the hell they were built for? All the projects and stuff like we don't believe in any of that stuff. Like we just mm-hmm. want to hang out with our wives and 
grow figs and swim in the Nile and do whatever the hell else, right? We're, we're totally not buying into the narrative of the time. And, but, you know, you, you can't, like, there's also an extreme value in, in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. in, in all the different, in the security and the order that the culture creates. And like, I don't, I don't mean to disparage these people, but I've been down in the Amazon, let's say, where culture is not highly developed because it's a very uh, onerous environment, oppressive environment. And the constituents of the culture that we're used to just don't exist down there. You have mud, you have water, you have rain, you have bugs mm -hmm. and lots of stuff that'll kill you. And that's not a great substrate to build order from like right. chaos is always impending, you know, yeah. is, is encroaching. And so you have people adapted to that environment, right? They're not talking about deep philosophical concepts. They're not, you know, looking into the minutia of, of, you know, a, a t particular intellectual pursuit or anything like they're kind of like hunt fish, yeah. hang out in the sun, procreate. And so, easy. yeah. And so we have to be, we have to realize the value that like just the fact that you and I can have the type of conversation we're having today is because we're embedded within a quote unquote sophisticated culture with a, yeah. you know, fairly long lineage of, you know, yes, like steps backward, but hopefully at least in some domains stepping forward, mm -hmm. you know, what, what excites me so much is like, man, when we can strip the baggage off of this thing, like we, when we can, you know, burn off the fat, you know, we can get it to like mm -hmm. mostly just the good stuff and all those feedback cues that we get, as you said, not just the prosperity, but like all the circumstances that a, a, a system predicated on a more truthful principle, let's say mm -hmm. all the cues and signals that people would get in that, how that would shape, you know, the, yeah. the type of people. Cause I guess the point is as much as we want, we can't extricate ourselves entirely from the times we're in, you know, there's yeah. something about it that we can't see outside of. And, um, you know, I'm so, if this, you know, I know a ton of great people. You do too. There's so many great people in the world. In fact, most people are great. You know, yes, people adhere to their ideologies too much and they're a bit brainwashed and they're conditioned, that kind of stuff. And I was shitting on, you know, people before we started, but like mm -hmm. most people are still great. You know, they have good hearts and they, they want to be peaceful and that kind of thing. And just to know that the, we have the tools and the substrate to create a world where those people will be permitted to let the better aspects of themselves flourish yeah. and, and be rewarded yeah. for their expression yes. is so fucking exciting. Yeah. You know, rather than having to, to fend off the, the, the compulsion to express the worst aspects of yourself, because right. that's what the, the culture is drawing out more, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, freedom Facilis facilitates the flourishing of the angel, right? Like if you, and we could say this in terms of economic prosperity, clearly there's a lot of other elements to freedom, but if you just have your basic needs met, everyone's paid for and fed well and sheltered, and you're accumulating some savings through some amount of work per week, but you have this surplus of time, right? Like people I think of people that I know, it's like, people don't just, it's not like you hit some threshold and then you just go sit on the beach and sip margaritas the rest of the time. Like people do productive, good things. And they're typically things from the heart, right? It's like the thing they would do 
if money were no object, because by definition, that's what they're doing when all their monetary needs are met, right? They're, they're, they're doing a passion project or they're volunteering or they're building schools or, you know, like interesting things, things that are constructive. That's where the real wealth comes from. I think, you know, like we we're, we're still kind of like climbing out of the muck a bit as, as a species and that, we figured out the recipe to create wealth, but we haven't figured out the recipe for distributing that wealth. We keep trying to arbitrarily redistribute the wealth, which entails monopolizing the money, stealing from some, giving to others. You're creating this game that causes the most, it incentivizes the development of the most unscrupulous characteristics to get on top of this machine and drive it to your own benefit, right? The people that are truly power hungry, there's no more powerful in a sense of control over others. There's no more powerful position to be in than near as near that fiat currency spigot as possible. It is a well of limitless power, more or less. And that, is robbing everyone else that's being victimized by it of this freedom to get to this point where they could do something from their heart, something they would really like to do in the world, live from purpose. You might say you're just drowning all of that, all of it worldwide to feed one person's egoic pursuit of power or a handful of people's egoic pursuit of power. And all that's rooted in the money, all that, the whole thing, you have unmonop unmonopolizable money. The whole game goes away. The whole game board gets flipped over. There is no more proximity to the printing press. There's no proximity to that well of limitless power. It's decentralization of power, right? We keep talking about decentralization as like from a technological standpoint of the monetary network, but it is the decentralization of political power as well. Um, that Bitcoin embodies. And it, yeah, it just, I, I go back to that quote, which is, you know, sovereign is he who decides the exception. That's why in a real spiritual sense, God or your term for God, the Tao, the nature, whatever, the highest principle should be the only sovereign, truly sovereign aspect of existence, right? It's like each person living according to their highest principle if there is someone that has developed a system that they can constantly award themselves exceptions, which is what inflation is, right? It's like, Hey, here's the money supply today. We're going to make an exception. I'm going to have a little bit more of it now. And you're going to have a little bit less, right? That's, they're just constantly creating exceptions. And that's just the core exception. Then you get into all the legislation and all the other coercion that builds up around that. Yeah. And sovereignty is just totally perverted and mutilated. Right. The principle, the principle of sovereignty is, is we'll just, we just go far away from it as a yeah. result. And, 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 and for me, so we've been talking a lot about, you know, truth, but also the, the counterpart to truth or maybe the prerequisite is freedom and sovereignty, right? Because mm. it begs the question, if it's not the, the freely chosen, expression of the individual, then mm -hmm. what is the truth that you're, 
you're presuming is true, I guess. Like what mm -hmm. if, if, if the expression is not freely chosen, then the information that characterizes that expression is diluted in some way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it brings to mind, I think this is a quote from Jesus, but I think he said, let truth and the, the divine in, in each individual be your guide or, or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like as I pursue this understanding and, and this thinking around these concepts, you know, and, and of course, Peterson's work has been instrumental in this regard, but a lot of that stuff takes on different meaning, right? And it doesn't have to be just the, the, the Christian, uh, you know, corpus. It can be the Eastern stuff as well. Like it all is, is taking on different meaning. And I think that's also why a lot of Bitcoiners are happy to either initiate an inquiry into the philosophical aspects of life or reignite what was there previously, which is, I guess, the case for me, uh, because now it all seems so relevant, you know? And so yeah. I want to ask you this two, two things on the back of that. Um, one is, you know, so you went from kind of being a chubster to a weightlifter, right? You do the powerlifting and stuff. Um, and you, we, we talked about kind of the process of becoming aware of that you could mold your mind and your body to, you know, right. do what you wanted to do. Yeah. Um, what was your, and we're talking about how ideals pull us forward and all that kind of stuff. What was, when you were that age, what was it that you were striving for? Right. Cause you, you figured out that you could like pretty much construct yourself to meet, to, to achieve what you wanted to achieve. And I feel like, you know, intermixed throughout all this, like you've always kind of, as we said, been curious, been somewhat philosophical. What were you, what was the ideal at that age? And when did it shift to something else? Um, you know, so I got initially started in, in Olympic weightlifting because I had been playing football and I was wrestling and in the off season, uh, actually we had wrestling practice in the same gym as my weightlifting coach was doing weightlifting. So it was the first time I saw it. And then my friend James at the time in the, in the wrestling off season started to go into weightlifting. He was the opposite of me. I was like big Husky kid. He was a little skinny kid. Um, but he's really smart guy. We always got along. He went in to try to gain weight, you know, for the next season. And he started just, had incredible results. He put on like 15 pounds of muscle over a summer, like he grew a lot. And so all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I want to do that. Like, I want to go like get serious, you know, not just do the sport in the season, like train in the off season too, to come back next season and be even better and stronger and all this. Right. So that's what got me into it. But then getting into the sport of Olympic weightlifting, I ended up dropping all the other sports and just focusing on that. And I think the, the ideal or principle that was drawing me forward, I guess you could say it was competition itself. Like once I went to my first Olympic weightlifting contest, which you actually go to competitions, you have th three snatches and three clean and jerks. Those are the two competitive lifts and you add together your highest from both lifts and you get your total. And the total is how you determine who wins, right? The ranking of who wins. I had, you know, 
I always liked wrestling more than football because it was an individual sport. Like the two injuries I did sustain were in football and they were because of botched tackles on my teammates. Like I ended up just getting blindsided by a kid that should have been blocked, you know? So it was like a failure of my teammate that caused me to get injured. And so maybe that pushed me somewhat towards the individual sport. Um, but in weightlifting, it was just you, man. It was just you, your training, your commitment, your technique, your mindset, like no one's going to screw you up in weightlifting, right? It's just, you're not going to have a missed tackle or anything like that. But when the first competition I went to, you know, I didn't, I, I don't know. I don't even know if I placed place like sixth or seventh, but it was so, there was so much energy there to get on the platform and like months of training coming down to like six five second lifts, you know, like it's 30 seconds, roughly of performance. Maybe if you combine it all together, if that 20 seconds of performance, but behind that or below that tip of the iceberg is just months of training. Visualization is a big aspect of it because you can't technique is how you win the game. Like I said, you need to be strong. You need to be fast. You need to be flexible. All if you've ever seen these lifts, which they've been popularized by CrossFit, like they're explosive. You, you're trying to get as much weight as you can over her head as fast as you can, basically. Um, but it all comes down to technique. It's like how refined your technique is, is how well you perform. I outcompeted a lot of kids that were way stronger than me because I had better technique. Um, so that process of competition, I guess. And then the, there was so much data driven tracking the way my coach would create these workouts was a huge, nice sheet. And he would show you like week over week, how you're going to progress. And we would train up to 85% of our maximum. And then we'd train down and we'd increase squat volume, um, against that, you know, like we'd squat more in the weeks where we're lifting less and vice versa. We'd actually do heavier lifts and squat less. And we oscillate. It was such a science, you know? And so it was so, I was fully engaged with like my mind, I'm visualizing lifts all the time. I'm studying weightlifting video. Like you look at the guys in the Olympics and the distant ideal or goal was to go to the Olympics. You know, that's what everyone wants to do. The U S typically puts two people on the Olympic team every four years. The U S is not good at Olympic weightlifting, by the way, we're one of the worst countries in the world. Um, and you get awarded slots based on how good your whole team performs. So as one of the lowest performing teams, we typically only send two guys to the Olympics. So the distant dream was to do that. You're just like working towards that, that goal. And, um, it was great, man. It was a, it was a very powerful disciplinary force in my life. I learned a lot traveling. I competed internationally. Like I, I became very immersed in this subculture. It was a very tiny niche subculture, but everyone knew everyone within it, you know, and there's like magazine, little USA weightlifting magazine being published every month. And there's, you know, it's just a whole thing. You're online in chat rooms talking about it and just analyzing, analyzing and refining and refining. So I guess that's what really pulled me into it. And then I ultimately at 17, I, I gave it up. I, because it is a, it's a hard life, frankly, like, especially at the point when I'm 17 years old, I'm competing at the senior national level. So I'm competing with people nationally that are 20 years and up and age is a big, big deal in that sport, clearly. Um, 
and I was training twice a day. I was like train in the morning, train in the evening. You can't drink, can't do, you can't do anything. You got to study technique and then go to school. So it became a very robotic lifestyle. And around the age of 17, all my friends were out having a good time, you know, and, uh, you're just getting more interested in girls. And, <laughs> and I knew that I was going to go off to college the next year. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to university. I was already decided I'm going to university. I was like, I know that's, you know, I'm basically going to have fun and get a degree. So I ended up let letting me, it go. It was hard though. Let, let me, so when I was that age, um, I, all these philosophical pursuits that we've been talking about, like they, they had always been an interest of mine and I pursued them in my spare time and all that kind of stuff um, while balancing, you know, being a stupid kid and getting drunk in the park with my buddies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I wasn't, you know, by any means like a, a nerdy stay at home all the time kid, but I really enjoyed the mysteries, I guess the mystery of, of life. It, it, it called mm. me in, in, in many ways. Uh, but I was conditioned in certain aspects. Uh, the, the relationships I had in my life, the influences, like I just wanted to be rich when I was a teenager. Yeah. Same. And then you know, during university and subsequent to that. And so this is what a part of the, what I'm asking about the ideal is like that started to shift for me, like obviously still want to have the optionality to do the things that I want to do and to, you know, you know, have comfort and all that kind of stuff. But as a primary ideal that started to fade into the background and, and these more transcendent ideals, perhaps began, began to emerge to the surface. And as a result of that, practically speaking as an influence on my life, I think it, it caused me to wander and search for a while because, you know, for whatever reason, I became disillusioned with the, the ideal of just rich, uh, and filling that, that, uh, that, that gap was, I guess, took some time for me. Like I had to go out and try to see like, well, what is worthy of being at the top of the hierarchy, hierarchy as it were. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, finding my way to Bitcoin and, you know, uh, this, I think this pursuit and the meaning that it holds is absolutely worthy of, of taking a top spot, at least in terms of intellectual pursuits and career and that kind of stuff is, is concerned. But, you know, for you, when like, bring me up to the point that you decided that, you know, Bitcoin was the thing that you wanted to devote your, your at least professional life to. And I know obviously more than that, but like what, what changed between what you were pursuing prior to, and then as a result of, you know, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Yeah. So after weightlifting, you know, I went to college basically and I was, Uh, I guess you could just say kind of a frat boy. I mean, I actually, I did join a fraternity. I, I always, I kept up good grades. College was still pretty easy. Undergraduate was pretty easy, but I partied a lot. Um, I got into boxing for a little while and then. Did you, did you enjoy the partying? Did you feel like it was just what, what you do in that environment? I mean, yeah, you enjoy it at one level. Like you're just, your the animal. The only reason is... why I ask is because like when I, I was in the same situation and, and 
I would be out there and getting shit faced with my buddies and at nightclubs and be feeling like a bag of shit the next morning. And mm. often like every weekend, mm. pretty much for mm. a period of time. And I never felt good about it. Like mm. the whole thing. I was just like, I don't even enjoy this, but there was nothing to, I guess I didn't work hard enough or didn't have the courage to, or wasn't, uh, I didn't take the initiative to fill the void, like to come up with something that I could put in that place. Be like, no yeah. guys, I'm not going out this Friday night because I'm doing fill in the blank. I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't do that. And so the whole time, like, I, I feel like I never really, I never committed to that lifestyle, even though I lived it for many years Yeah. because I always just felt this is stupid. This is a stupid waste of time, but I participated in it and of course enjoyed it on a level uh, because I didn't know what to put in its place. Yeah. I, I feel similar in that I, I didn't even know there was a thing to put it in its place. I thought that's all there was for the, <laughs> the animal, you know, like I guess the, the animal for me also, he enjoyed sport a lot, athletics, but the partying was something else. It's like, especially when you're working like this, I mean, in college, it's just the, the culture, you know, everyone's like you're, there's football games and everyone's drinking all day. It's just, you're so immersed in it. But then after college, you dial back the partying quite a bit actually, but you're still doing it on the weekends and it's, it's more like an escape from work in a way, but I guess, yeah, at the animal level, I enjoyed it, but there's also this part of me that was always, it would just pop in randomly. Maybe it was the angel or that floating point awareness where you're like sitting at some nightclub late at night and just your awareness pops in. It's like, Hey man, like, (laughs) what are you doing right now? And you're just like sitting on a couch, like, drinking hard liquor listen like the music's deafening you can't even talk to anyone you're just kind of scoping cool. it out yeah <laughs> and I'm like what the what is that? that how is that a lifestyle like what um uh, so that definitely yeah. popped in many often but i never knew i don't know i never knew what to do with it. i never so yeah. So there's college and then I go, I get my master's degree accounting and finance. And that was my big ideal pulling me through college is like, I need to get this degree that gets me money that gets me freedom. Basically, you know, you get to, once you have money, that's the same game everyone else is playing around me. I guess that's the game I'm going to play too. And then you'll be happy. You know, once you get money, you'll be happy. You'll I didn't even have a template for that. I just was, was that. And then, so I go to work, um, you know, started in accounting, but that was like very linear. So I ended up getting into more entrepreneurial pursuits and I hit a bit of a stride. Not that I was rich necessarily, but I made way more money suddenly than I ever could have imagined throughout my entire life. It was just like, all of a sudden I could do a lot of things, you know? And, um, that's when things, I guess I started to, to wander off into the darkness a bit because I'd, I'd been with a, I had dated a girl for a long time, uh, seven years, long time. And we reached the point as the decision point is like, I either have to marry this girl or I need to move on. 
And I gave in to the animal, I guess you would say, like, I felt a lot of dissonance inside me, which I didn't understand at the time, but I, in reflection, I guess it was kind of angel and animal. It's like, do you want to have this higher order principled married existence or do you want to go and like, cause we dated from, I was with her from the age of 23 to 30. So there were, there were a lot, of, there was a lot of animal suppression during that time. <laughs> and, uh, the uncertainty or the dissonance I had between those two poles was my indication that I needed to let her go. Cause I thought if you're going to get married, you need to be pretty damn certain. It's, it's a permanent intended to be a permanent decision. Right. So I decided to run wild and, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that I had sort of reached that point. It's like I had money, I had freedom, and I, but I had no, I had lost my way. You know, I didn't have a, a purpose really. It was just whatever, go work, make some more money and then go spend it on the weekends and repeat. Like I wasn't completely gone. I'll say like I had this, I was still practicing yoga a lot. I had kind of a meditation practice going on. I was still reading. I've always just been reading. So there's always this other undercurrent of me that was kind of put together, but there's this other part that was getting bigger. It was yeah. not, you know, it was just, just rambunctious, I guess, or just standard young, uh, well-to-do man. Right. Like you just, I don't know if it's even standard. Uh, you're just a party guy. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's the I general term. Um, and that, got me i just happened to get into actually i've told the story before but like heard about bitcoin kind of ignored it had written it off just didn't look at it close enough frankly and then the marketing related to ethereum actually got its hooks into me when i heard about smart contracts and then read zabo's work on smart contracts <clears throat> and zabo's work was the real like this is a big deal like pay attention this tech is like he describes the smart contract as a vending machine. I don't know if you ever read that piece, but um, kind of makes the case that finance is just this big intermediary function in the world. And then a lot of it could be eaten by software. So I thought at, then at the time, like, okay, this could be like an internet 2.0 kind of thing. So started investing and just buying all the, you know, mainly on Coinbase, I think it was Bitcoin, Ethereum and Litecoin at the time. And then that was early 2017 and then 2017 just exploded. Um, and I was people in my life knew I was investing in the space. Everyone kept asking me about it. And then we just decided to launch a fund and then the fund started out diversified crypto asset. And then we, we launched basically straight into the bear market. So that was absolutely brutal. Um, I had a hundred plus investors just playing psychologist, all of them dealing with all of that stress. Um, <laughs> things went from like a party to a real serious affair really quick. It's like, Oh shit. I just raised a bunch of money. I have to really get dialed in here. And all the while I'm studying, right. I'm just, I'm reading, studying, I'm learning as fast as I can. And that's me going down the rabbit hole. I'm just like, Oh, wait. I, the other thing I didn't mention, I had this, 
Uh, let's see. So that's 2017, probably in 2005, maybe six. I had studied, I'd read Creature from Jekyll Island. So I knew I'd been down the central banking rabbit hole. I knew that was like a problem of the world, but I kind of put it away because I didn't know what to do with it. I was just like, Same. okay, this thing's really corrupt and really evil and bad, but like, what can you do about it? What There's literally do? nothing you can do about it. So when I got far, far enough down the Bitcoin rabbit hole to realize like, holy shit, this is the thing. This is the thing that does something about it. Then it, like all these pieces of my life, my, my libertarian self <laughs> and you know, philosophical self, yoga self, like all these like pieces just started like align. And, um, and now I'm here, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but see, that's, that's the thing. Right. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people experience this and it's certainly been my experience and we've talked about our backgrounds and our interests and all that kind of stuff. And is it, is it just because this thing fixes the problem or is it because this thing is a representation of truth that quote unquote rectifies pathological hierarchies everywhere? Like why is it that it takes, you know, how you treated your body and the philosophies that you, you know, explored and all this stuff. And this is the thing that brings alignment to all of it. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's a very deep question and it's, you know, it it is the the path down the rabbit hole. I can tell you where I'm at today with it. And then to put it into words is still a bit tricky because it is kind of an emergent thought, but we, we think people I guess we fail to appreciate how much the world around us shapes who we are. Like that always say that, you know, it's like Churchill said, the structures we make in turn, make us the tools we make in turn, make us, as we said earlier, the incentive systems that we inhabit sculpt our character, our behaviors. Um, I really think that everything percolates up from the socioeconomic systems we build, like those generate the incentives that sculpt our behavior, right? Shape our characters in a lot of way. I'm not trying to say it's total because I know there's other cultural elements and religious elements and things that contribute to it, but at a very deep biological level, it is these, it is these worldly incentives. It's like, I'm going to go take action, but every action I take is sort of an expected value calculation. Like I'm trying to get this pursuit of something for nothing, if you will, that on the axis of good and evil can be good and that it leads you to be an innovative entrepreneur, but it could also be evil and that it induces you to steal and, and, um, you know, be violent even to take, take resources from others to get something for nothing, to get a positive expected value on your action. Right. That's what, that's kind of what we're all doing as, as economic agents. And, um, it seems to me that, so those socioeconomic systems push those incentives up through our flow. So almost like the, these survival strategies that are based on the incentives we're inhabiting propagating through flesh is the more apt way to describe a human being, I think. And it's, and it's dynamic, 
right? Again, it's not static. So like you got to get the good people here and the bad people there. Like that to that notion of good people, bad people makes no sense. Like you're not thinking deep enough. It's was it, was it uh Solzhenitsyn, the, the, the line between good and evil runs down the heart of every man. Like we all choose in every moment. What, if it's good or evil, like our course mm-hmm. of action is good or evil, right? Are we intentionally creating something good and constructive for ourselves and others? Or are we intentionally inflicting harm on someone else with the intent of taking from them, right? Would be more like the evil side of the, the decision matrix. And so I think our morality then percolates up from these socioeconomic systems, which are the socioeconomic systems themselves, the base layer, the kernel of them is the money, right? We build those systems to settle the money, to settle, to facilitate trade. And money is just this emergent, most marketable good, right? It's just the high, the most tradable thing, basically. So it's weird, like we're in this continuous relationship with the systems around us. We're not distinct from them. You know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a discrete relationship. It's not like there's this tool over there and me over here. And we have no, there's no reflexivity between us. It's like, as I use, and it can be as simple as a hammer. As I use this hammer, I notice that it's weight is slightly off. So it's tweaking my wrist a little bit. So I'm going to go in and redesign this hammer such that it has a slightly lower center of gravity. So the human action has reflexivity on the tool but then the tool is also reshaping us back, right? As we swing that hammer, if you do it generation after generation, you're probably going to be one of those guys as an old man, really strong right arm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> had a friend from Iowa. His dad is an arm wrestling champ. It's like, you know, it's all he did was build houses for 30 years. And his Giant right hands, arm was just, huge forearms. Yeah. His right arm yeah. was indestructible, but his left arm, I could beat him left-handed, you know, it's like, <laughs> how's that not evo- that's evolution, like just in a small scale. So th- there's this, this reflexive relationship between man and tool or creator and created that we fail to understand and account for. Mm-hmm. We're not looking below ourselves enough to really understand the substrates that we inhabit. I think the most fundamental substrate is money. So when it's out of alignment, right, as we've said earlier, and it's, it has theft integrated directly into it, right? Like fiat currency is born by borrowing. Mm. It comes into existence as a loan from the federal reserves balance sheet at interest, right? There's interest flowing backwards to the issuer. It's stealing from you as it emerges, Right, stealing from you at layer one, and then as it, you know, clearly as it gets multiplied out into multiple layers of the system, that theft keeps flowing backwards. So, how does that not corrupt our moral character? Right, it's the most fundamental tool for human existence. We use it, touch it, think about it constantly, more than almost anything else, as a practical matter. Right, we're calculating in it but it's robbing us of life energy It's robbing us of time all the time. Like, instead of being like, how does it corrupt our moral character? Like how the fuck does it not? How could it do anything else? Right. Is the way I almost see it today. And I know it, it's, yeah. it's out there. It's abstract. It's philosophical, but I, to me, it's just, it's obvious. crystal clear at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's so obvious. You know, I, I'd never thought about it in this way, but 
as you were saying that, and as you were, we were talking about your live when you were uh, living the party life before, but you kept up, you know, the yoga and some other quote unquote healthy routines. Cause when I think about how this thing, as you just described, like when, when you see it for what it is, it tends, why is it that it snaps all these things into place and kind of aligns your focus? And when, when I was in a similar situation to you, when I was kind of wandering, I always kept up, you know, there was periods where I was less, less healthy and more healthy, but I kept up, you know, taking care of my body, eating well, all the different practices that like, and I did them for, I think now that I think of it for two reasons, one, because of the, the value I got from doing them, the mm-hmm. clarity of mind, the energetic body, the strength, whatever. But I think there was a second, almost latent obje- like reason. And it was because it was in preparation for something being worth my effort or something to that effect, like just mm-hmm. kind of like prepping myself for when I encounter the thing that's worthy of my whole self. Right. Mm -hmm. So that I'm closer to max capacity to devote to something intellectually, physically, whatever. And I think part of the phenomenon with Bitcoin is that and the reason why it maybe snaps together a lot of that stuff is because now you have the original reason you do these things because in the moment they make you feel better uh, and happier and more well adjusted and all that kind of stuff. But I think part of the reason we see similar phenomena from people in the space is because now there's a reason to call forth the best of you, right? Like this, this, this conception of this idea on the horizon that is of the manner that we've been characterizing here, that is, is instilling such a sense of hope and opportunity and, you know, all that kind of stuff that it's, it's inviting you to, it's giving you cause Mm -hmm. to express the best of yourself or to even mine yourself or refine yourself for what that, for what that is. And so I think for people that have had these kind of disparate pursuits that could fall under the banner of self-improvement or maintenance or whatever, Mm -hmm. this thing becomes a cause to focus all of that energy and attention uh, toward a, a proper and, and specific aim. And like, you know, for, I think for a lot of us, that's a relief because you can go through life and always be wondering like what's worthwhile. Like, and if you, if you have a family that that changes the dynamic because you'll, you'll, you know, you'll die for your children and that kind of stuff. But like, even, even if you have that, you're, I think it would still be a nagging thing, but especially for people that don't, it's like, you know, what's, especially in a system like this, that beats you down and that drowns you as we've been characterizing, like, what's the point? Like, why give it my effort? If it's just gonna, if even, if even the reward like doesn't satisfy my soul to some degree, right? Like, even if I actually play this shitty game and I actually win it, I'm not going to get what I need and want out of it, you know? So what, what's the point? Like what's, what's actually worthwhile. And I think Bitcoin is that, you know, once you understand it, it becomes that thing that is maximally worthwhile that, yes. that brings all of that together. And how does that not, how does that not ignite a fire in you? You know? Yeah. I, um, I guess I was, you know, part, part of the Eastern philosophy, actually that Musashi words that I've always lived by, 
since I discovered him, I was maybe 18 years old, I guess. I read the book of five rings and one of his principles for strategic living is the way, which the way is like the Tao. It's the ultimate mode of being, I guess you might say. Um, his quote is the way is in training. And so I just all, I don't know. I took that. I was already kind of running that program, you know, from weightlifting right. and studying all that, but it was like, holy shit. I was, I was really into Taoism at the time too. So when he put it that simply and that beautifully, I read that as if our only purpose is to condition ourselves for all circumstances. You know, you want to be the best that you can be to say it in a cliche way or, mm. um, to evolve, right? Right. To consciously evolve. Like life, like it's almost, it's congruent with the principles of nature. It's like the universe is constantly unfolding, evolving and changing. It's like you are too, always, you can't stop it. What you can do is consciously direct it. So I was very into training, you know, I was up early all the time. I was in the gym. I was working my ass off at work. I was reading a lot, meditating. I was just constantly trying to expand these different aspects of myself. But, but I think it, yeah, man, you, I would definitely experience some corruption. I tasted corruption, you know, like it infected me a little bit because part of it, especially when I, I separated from my ex, um, I mentioned this in the piece. I always had this like baby face in college. I was very just pud not pudgy face, which is the baby face, you know, like just a soft looking face. Mm -hmm. And then around the age of 29, 30, it started to just melt away. And, you know, women were paying attention like, Oh, he's handsome. <laughs> and at the same time I'm making money. And I think I just happy days. I became a bit, I, I suffered from vanity a bit too. Like I started training. I wanted to have the good body. I wanted to look good. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted to be, you know, res I mean, respected, like, I guess you could say respected too, but it's almost like to be able to walk into a room and have that, that power persona, you know, like, Oh, you look good. You make money like plus, but not just pure ego. Almost. It was like, almost I was developing the egoic side, but I also was trying to develop the other side too. You know, I'm like meditating, doing yoga, trying to be a good person. But, but it, it if you pursue that, egoic side it does it doesn't feel good it doesn't mm. feed back into you properly i don't i don't know exactly how to describe it but well i think there's some sort of notion that it's artificial right yeah. you can fool everybody on the outside no problem you know you can put yes. on a nice suit you can be jacked you can have a big bank account yes. you can't yeah. fool yourself you know right <clears throat> and then the bitcoin um so it's like there's that, that principle, the way is in training, but you also have to think about what you're training, you know, like you forget that by going to the nightclub that you're training yourself, actually. Right. It's not like I went to the gym today. I get to go to the nightclub. All good. Like there's whatever you're doing habitually, you are training yourself towards. So if you're going to the nightclub every weekend, you're becoming more like those people that you're sitting around looking at, <laughs> hoping you're not like those people at the nightclub, <laughs> like you're becoming that. Um, 
so maybe I just hadn't under, like I hadn't digested the full scope of the implications of that necessarily. And, um, Bitcoin. Yeah. It gave you, it gives me, I finally found that thing, you know, where I'm, I'm now, I haven't drank in, uh, I kind of phase out of the lifestyle as you, as you get older, I think it's a bit natural to do that. But then I completely gave up alcohol, uh, a year and a half ago, roughly. I haven't had a drop of alcohol in a year and a half. Um, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a, there's a story there too, that I think is for another day. That's probably another two hour story. Just going through some personal and professional tribulations and just figuring things out. Just, but, but Bitcoin kept elevating itself in my mind and heart as a higher and higher purpose. It became a higher and higher moral aim because it was so much more than just a technology or so much more than just making money or profiting. It was like, this thing is, has the potential to reorganize the world (laughs) forever. Mm. And I'm experiencing like the, the closer I look into it, the more I go down to this rabbit hole, the more it's drawing me in, the more it's reorganizing me. Like you're describing, you know, in Peterson's writing that it is, uh, again, I didn't know this at the time, but it's philosopher's stone like, and then um, just by happenstance, you know, Peterson was recommended to me by a few different people through Bitcoin basically. So I was like, and I heard about it, heard about it. And finally I was like, all right, I'll listen to some of his lectures. And it was immediately, it was another one of those things in my life. I'm like, where has this guy been? Like the, he's putting it together for me on so many levels and taking me back to my roots. Like I was raised Southern Baptist in Tennessee, but never, never thought, never took church seriously. You know, I always thought it was just kind of the communal feel good activity. Never took it mm-hmm. nearly as seriously as it should be. And he was building that bridge for me between my scientific empirical self back to Christianity, which was also, you know, the yoga gave me this spiritual sort of thing and a respect for Taoism, but to get back into, to tie that all that back into Christianity gave me this real, real strong foundation in myself to kind of build, to reinvent myself, to re to recreate myself. And so it's just amplified me in a way like never before. Like now I'm, I'm charged. I'm, I read more than ever. I work more than ever. I write more than ever. I talk about all of this is the new, I never used to talk that much at work period. It was mostly just writing and trading and doing the things, but it's given me this, it's awakened something in me, I guess. And, and I'm getting feedback from people, feedback from the market. They're like, they like it. And, it, and it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's given me purpose, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, and it's so powerful, you know, from the outside looking in people are like, what are you talking about? But it's, but we see it happening. Like it's going one direction. It's not going the other direction. It's not like this is a toss up. Like is Bitcoin really a big deal or not? Like, no, it's like clearly sailing one direction it's a bigger and bigger deal in people's lives. It's reorganizing other people. It's monetizing, you know, it's, it's becoming a geopolitical concern. It's like, this thing is the, the, 
the smooth stone that's been slung and it's like it's it's incredible it's just incredible to be a part of this journey and and now yeah i'm glad everything that i've been through all the all the good bad the darkness and it's encouraging me now to, to, to take a look at myself and look at these darker parts of myself and figure out how to integrate them into my being. Um, all with the aim of, of hopefully helping humanity in a really as much, to the best of my ability, I guess. Yeah. And this will, this will be the last kind of track we go down, but I want <clears throat> to hang out here for a sec, just because, you know, you talk about all the things that you've given up to, uh, more capably, you know, apply yourself to this pursuit. Right. And of course, you know, you can't help but think again, especially after reading Pearson's work and stuff is like, what is the thing that you're willing to most sacrifice to? What is yes. the thing that's the most worthy sacrifice? What do we usually yes. call that? You know, yeah. we, we, we call that God in, in, in many yeah. cases, you know, in the archetypal sense, <laughs> that's the thing that grants the best the greatest reward for your greatest sacrifice. Right. And so seeing all these, and you can call it lowering your time preference, right? But you take that to the extreme. It's like, how much can I give up in the yes. service of getting something greater in return? That's later? exactly right. And what is the thing that's mediating that in the religious stories is God. In this mm -hmm. instance, it's Bitcoin. You yeah. know, that's, that's the thing. And, um, you know, I know you and I, you know, love, discussing these topics and stuff and for people maybe outside the Bitcoin space they're super far out. But uh, I am interested, like you, you said in the piece that you wrote that, and you just referenced again, how uh, you've uh, gone back to Christianity or you, you've gone back to church, you know, and it has a, a grounding effect to, mm -hmm. to some degree. What is your perspective on the church at, at this point and the role of quote unquote dogmatic religion in your routine, in your life, in the life you're composing, like what's your, what, what's your perspective on it? I mean, for me, I think community is important. Like we, we have to be integrated in some community. Um, it's probably the same type of that same deeply held desire to want to connect and commune. It's probably the same reason you're going to the nightclub as you're going to church, you know, like you're trying to connect with other people basically, but it's in what container and what setting and on what premise are you connecting with those people? And the church that I go to, I, the guy is like a historian. He's like a biblical historian. He walks through each verse in the old Testament. And then he pulls up a map and he shows you like where they were battling, where they're riding their horses to. It is, it is incredible. Like I, I've been to other churches where it's kind of, it kind of feels like they just repackage the moral principles and tell you a few story and quote a few verses, but this is something really different. I'm, I'm just fortunate to have found it because again, it speaks to this, there's this very pragmatic Darwinian, like um, serious side to me that the, the, the stoic side, or I don't, I don't know what you call it exactly. It's like, I need things. I desire things to not be sugar coated or feel good 
or, you know, weak, you know, I want the strong, hard, like real truth. Yeah. Cold, hard truth. And the way that this particular pastor who happens to be from Tennessee is as well, which is interesting because I'm from Tennessee and we're, we're not in Tennessee. Um, he just, yeah, he just speaks my language. So I get a lot of, a lot of that going to church. And I think too, it's really important for me to focus on the word, the word, like I want to learn what's in the Bible. I don't want to learn your interpretation of it per se. I know there's, there's not, it's not possible to not have an interpretation, but I'm not trying to go to some specific denomination that teaches a certain thing and they have their own principles. Like, I don't care about any of that. I want to know what's in the Bible. Like what is there? So the fact that he goes through each verse verbatim is really, really effective for me. And I don't know what it is, man. It's, it's the greatest, this is the most powerful book in history. You know, like it's symbolic language. It's not literal. So when people read it and they apply this, scientific interpretation of it. It's like, of course it doesn't make any sense. It's not, everything is allegorical. It's all Mm. symbolic. Um, there's a great book I'm reading right now. It's called this. You might like this one, actually the language of creation, uh, by Matthew Peugeot. Uh, his brother, Jonathan Peugeot is, uh, he's on Peterson's channel a lot. And they, you know, they talk a lot about the Bible, but it's just, it, it goes through the symbolic language that's in the Bible. And it's really, really an eye opener. Um, so that's where I'm at now. I don't, I don't, you know, it's like, you could maybe distill it down to Lindy effect or a free market phenomenon. It's like the fact that the Bible is even here still, And there are this many people that have voted for its existence, right. By buying it, reading it. like, it's, there are principles in there that we may not even be able to articulate, right? Like the deepest things that we're not even capable, capable necessarily to pull up into cognition and and reduce and explain. Maybe that's why, by the way, maybe they're so deep and so fundamental that they do not seed to cognition necessarily. And that's why they throw off so much. There's so much richness there. So many different ways to interpret it. It applies at so many different levels of existence, right? The individual Mm -hmm. communal across time, across space. It's just powerful. And I don't know. I would just, just have an open mind. Go, go anyone that's listening to this and you might be skeptical. I've been skeptical my whole life of Christianity and religion in general thought it was bogus, but there's something really powerful here. This, this may be a difficult question, but it's been the one that I've been grappling with as I try to get, you know, a piece of writing out the door, but Christianity emerged or these stories, let's say coalesced into a coherent story and what that story represented and what aspects of people it spoke to, I think represented an ordering principle that they could emulate ostensibly to experience more quote unquote success in their own life, you know, Mm -hmm. success as determined by mediating the forces of the structure of reality most optimally or effectively. Right. And, you know, just by virtue of the fact that it is as 2000 years old or whatever speaks to just how impactful that can be to have 
a a new and coherent ordering principle mm -hmm. that you can actually embody uh, and I guess see results from or, or, or yeah. you know see superior results from that's the fact that Christianity became what it became speaks to just how powerful that is. If we go with the kind of yes. mythical, you know, the, the mythical psychological interpretation of the stories and not the literal, which is what I, what I more lean towards. Um, but Bitcoin to me is a fundamental ordering principle mm. and it's in a fundamentally different way, way because it's not something that you emulate. It's something that you can actually, you know, uh, imbibe or engage uh, yeah. and participate in its ordering principle. And I think the fact that it does it the way that it does through the communication of pristine information across individuals uh, and uh, communicating uh, the environment that each individual exists in. So in that way, kind of communicating across scales, I, I what I'm grappling with is, is it not a refined instantiation of the dominant ordering principle? And I guess in that way, and I, there's no other way to say it. Like, is it uh, a more, is it the next instance? Is it what happened when, when the stories of Christianity emerged in a coherent form happening again uh, in a different way, obviously, but is it the same process just happening in a different form or are they complementary rather than uh, competitive in some way? You know, one of the, maybe this is the shortfall of the empirical scientific reductionist mind is that we, when we think in words and in language, we're putting, you know, it's highly dynamic, but each word is containing its own static reference in a way. And I think the Bible is a living document, right? To just say like the Bible in isolation versus Bitcoin in isolation. I don't think that's the case. There's this continuous narrative taking place. Um, for instance, like the book Paradise Lost that Peterson refers to a lot. He says that that's been all but incorporated into the biblical corpus, right? It's books written hundreds thousands of years after some of the stories in the Bible, but they've become so closely related to the Bible. Like they're almost part of it. So I think over in another few hundred years, maybe the Bible incorporates those stories as well, right? As these certain organizing principles become older, they become compressed into the, the biblical corpus in a way. And so, and this is where you get into the philosopher's stone stuff because they were looking for a way to instantiate those principles, right? So the Bible does not start out with, <laughs> so the culmination of Jesus, right? It's like love God and love your fellow man, right? Kind of his highest principles. There's some other stuff there too. The old Testament doesn't start out like that. There's a long progression and a lot of different moral permutations and to, to arrive at that. So it's a sequence of affairs, not just like a, a static document that someone put out, someone sat down and wrote a story and that was it. It's like this, this crystallization of moral lessons over time uh, encoded symbolically. And, it, and it's almost like, you know, the philosopher's stone, they were looking for a way to implement the principles 
of Christ in matter to pull spirit down to matter. And it was particular, you know, as Peterson says about Jesus's core teachings are to tell the truth and then to honor the sovereignty of the individual as a reflection of the sovereignty of God. And we have Bitcoin that is purely truthful, inarguable monetary speech. And it maximizes the sovereignty of the individual. So like, it's easy to say those words. I think about them all the time. I can't, it's so mind blowing soul expanding. I mean, it's just, you probably think about it the rest of your life. You know, it's just crazy. It's crazy that it even might be that. So who knows, man, maybe Satoshi gets incorporated into the biblical corpus someday. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with some of those thoughts now and they're pretty difficult thoughts to, uh, to articulate and get clarity on. So, but you know, that's, that's, what's so great about the work that you've done and the work that other people have done is like, we're just here being like, what the fuck is this thing? And you try to put out some thoughts. And as you said before, like maybe they're tinfoil hat, maybe they're far out, but you're never going to know until you put them out there and let other minds chew on them and and see what they say and pull from their own experience to put it through their own filter and add some nuance and other details. And, and again, like this, this was the process of the Bible, right? Is that, you know, people living and uh, acting out or observing action, then Mm -hmm. acting out uh, in procedure, in procedure, this information and knowledge about, you know, how people behave. And then at some point writing it down and then refining, uh, what they're writing down into something more coherent so that, you know, that knowledge can be passed on and it can be worked on. And then once it's in the semantic, semantic domain, you can more easily refine it and move things around. So, and asking, just asking, right. They kept asking this pattern of action. This was this right. Was this right? Was this right? That, and that's where truth is at the end of that chain that we can never reach. Right. Right. Which is the truth is the end of inquiry, but we never stop inquiring. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be, uh, to be on this ride and in particular with uh, people like yourself. So um, I guess that's a good place to put a pin in this thing until next time. Um, What's uh, What's coming up for you? Last thing, but you know, what's on your horizon? I know you're busy as hell. You're speaking. I see a new YouTube video with you on it every single day and yeah. I'm sure you're writing. What's, what's on your immediate horizon? Yeah, we're gearing up to go to Miami. So I'll see you down there. Um, and then I've been working on the book, which is really hard. Oh shit. Yeah. When is that? When's that I coming know. out? I have a, I have a targeted quarter four 21 release date, but I'm just trying to tie a lot of things together and it's, it's hard, hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, just, you know, I'm going to keep publishing. I got a lot of good episodes coming up on the, what is money show. Um, sailor and I have recorded another five hours together and we're on, we're scheduled to do another three hours this week. So we've probably got another, eight episodes of that ish coming out. What was um, the reason for going back to the giga chat? So, so soon. Well, we never finished. We had some uncovered ah. material. Yeah. 
Um, so it's really just putting a button on that one. And then um, I've done a lot of other episodes. So I'm really, really loving that. But I just get to talk with smart people all the time and broaden my horizons. And that's it's it. the best. <laughs> read, read, write, and talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> nothing better. Nothing yeah. better. Um, well, man, I appreciate it again. Um, look forward to the book whenever it comes out. And uh, we'll talk and have some steak and I'll drink some beers and you can have some tea at, uh, <laughs> in, in Miami. Awesome. All right, John. All right. Thank you so See much. You, brother. All right. Bye. Stop dreaming. Can he call my name?